Hey, Church of the Valley family, it is so good to be back with you at the pulpit, or really the music stand, to bring God's Word to you today. And not only that, I have the opportunity of doing it in the worship center, which has just reminded me of how much I miss all of you. As I look at these pews and I think about so many of you, and I think about those who lead worship and those who are doing children's ministry, and so it is so good to be back. I've been preaching regularly since 2012, and most Sundays, almost every Sunday, since 2014. So to get five Sundays off in a row, it has been a true blessing to me. I love teaching, but I think between the many, many, many sermons and the pandemic and attempting to do ministry so differently over the past six to seven months, it's taken a toll on me, if I'm honest. So not only did I want this break, I felt like I needed this break. But here's the best part. I got to coach, I got to help, encourage, and equip many other communicators within our church family to open the scriptures and teach the truth of the Word of God to you. I just want to publicly thank Mike Miller and Karen Miller for preaching on a very difficult passage regarding marriage that I think both of you did a phenomenal job with. Thank you to Laura Stangle and Calvin Miller and Malik Campbell and Gabriel Wills, four young adult staff members who not only taught God's Word truthfully, but brought their own personalities and their own voices to the, the Word, the text, and that we as a community are better off for listening and hearing the Word of God through all four of you. I want to thank Ruth Zilka for teaching the truth of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 22, a difficult passage, but you brought such clarity and confidence to that text in particular. And to Daniel Delwood, one of our elders, who once again taught a text with grace and with truth and Jesus at the center as the point. I feel incredibly blessed to be a pastor of this congregation right now because I got to learn like the rest of us through so many of the individuals who call Church of the Valley their home church. It gives me confidence that I don't need to teach every week, and I have especially enjoyed walking through the messages uh, through communication with many of those who taught us over the past five weeks. Today we're picking up where Peter, through Daniel, left off last week, where we will study Peter continuing to remind these exiled Christians of their responsibility of enduring through suffering in the most difficult times, all while pointing to our cornerstone and hero, who is Jesus Christ. Over the past month, we have heard Peter turn up the heat, if you will, in the encouragement when it comes to suffering, not because of the slight chance that suffering may happen, but in the inevitable reality that suffering has come, is coming, and will come. Our broken world does not shield us from hurt, pain, and suffering, but our broken world accentuates our need for a redemptive Savior and Lord. Look with me at verse 12 as we're going to begin in 1 Peter chapter 4. Here's what it says. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Dear friends, Peter says, dear beloved, my cherished family, do not be surprised. Don't act in shock. Do not be caught off guard from the fact that a fiery and difficult ordeal has come to test you. We can look at trials as opportunities of growth, or we can misinterpret those trials as punishment for our sin. But Peter uses the word to test you. 
which can create a plethora of feelings and emotions as we hear the idea that God tests us. We jump to conclusions based on what we know or don't know about God. And maybe for some, we assume that the hard things that we go through are to show God that we're really for Him. But don't be silly. God knows all. And so, He is not surprised by one's response to a trial or circumstance, so that this test that Peter is pointing out must have something to do with testing us so that we will understand, that we will know. Not only will we know, but as we have endured through an ordeal or a hard circumstance, others who see us and see how we have responded to it may praise our Heavenly Father. They may see the source of our strength, that they may question why we have hope in general, and then they may wonder about why we respond the way we do to trials. So don't be surprised, Peter says, but what's the opposite of surprised? It's to be expected. It's to be prepared. This is why preparation seems to be brought up so often in the Scriptures as a responsibility of believers. Ruth covered it in her message a few weeks ago in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, kind of in the middle of the verse, it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Jesus speaks of being watchful and prepared when it comes to the reality that he's going to be coming back, and he speaks about this in the Gospels. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus says, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. A believer's role is to be prepared for what God says will happen. We have a plan as it is revealed in the Scriptures. That plan is to be prepared for Jesus' second coming and to be ready and willing to point all the glory and all the credit back to him as we endure circumstances. So don't act as if you're surprised that difficult circumstances happen to you. As Daniel said last week, if your theology can't handle suffering, your theology is out of touch with reality. Peter goes on and he says in verse 13, but rejoice insomuch as you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. But rejoice, Peter says, be full of joy, be in a state of gladness and happiness. Why? Because your suffering identifies you with Jesus. This doesn't mean to become a masochist or attempt to find suffering. You don't have to look for suffering. Suffering finds you, but how you respond to it. Do you run from God when the going gets tough, or do you bow down and pursue God when your toughness personally just isn't enough? We all have a breaking point. Each one of us has that thing in our life that we hold back from God. That thing that we say, Lord, I trust you and I love you, but don't mess with blank. Don't mess with this. And depending on our maturity and our threshold for pain, that thing we don't want to give over to God that created idol in our lives may just be the one thing that owns us. The fear of losing it may paralyze us. For me, it's changed a lot over the years. But even though the object of my worship has changed, the idolatry, the fact that I have idolatry in my heart hasn't. I'd say for the past 13 years especially, my children have been that idol. I want nothing more than for them to be safe and happy and healthy. 
but their growth over time has become more important than anything else to me, which means that I may need to step in and discipline them quicker than I once would because, if I'm honest, I was lazy. Or I may need to listen more than I talk as I listen to my children and what they're feeling and experiencing. Or maybe I just need to play one more hand of Uno with my son. Or I may need to pray for them more fervently. But if they are really a gift from the Lord that he has entrusted to both Aaron and I, how we steward and prepare them is eternally important. God doesn't want nor should he be the one that we only run to when we are out of options. What I mean is, as you've been going through it, you shouldn't just go, God's going to be my last ditch effort. God is and will always be the first and only option for a Christian when it comes to times of suffering and heartache. As Peter states that we ought to rejoice in so much in comparison to Jesus's suffering, because we aren't taking on Jesus's suffering for our sins, we are identifying with Christ as we too experience pain. Because as a devoted follower of Jesus, that doesn't mean that it isn't doesn't mean that we are a comfortable couch potato, but a sinner who has carried a cross, died to his old self, and been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. New Testament authors speak often of these trials that they may happen. More of a generic term is generally used as the gospel writers write, but what Peter is speaking about here has more to do with suffering because of your identification with and in Jesus. So you may be overjoyed, he says, when his glory is revealed. I don't know about you, but I imagine what it'll be like when Jesus returns. I don't know how much imagery of Revelation, the book of Revelation, is allegory and how much is literal, but I imagine that we will see Jesus in the sky. How that happens, where every person on earth sees him at the same time, I don't know, but I see him coming in my imagination, and it's miraculous, and it's glorious. And I imagine that the believers, the true believers, the ones who are identified with and by Christ, they don't feel any fear. They are not afraid, but they are excited because the object of their faith will now be tangible in the glorified flesh, and that we will bow down. We will worship in the streets. I don't know if that happens in our lifetime, but in my imagination, it does. And I want to be prepared and ready to praise his name when he comes back. Peter goes on, verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, I always look at scripture from different points of view. And I know how the fundamentalist views this verse that we just read. It becomes the catch-all for why someone may be rude to us when we attempt to force Christ down someone's throat. But I will say that your proclamation, no matter how pure your motives and the amount of love you have for your audience, is one that will not always be received. In fact, people you care about will question why you tell them the gospel. Unfortunately, your motives will be questioned and your message will be strongly opposed. And what Peter says is that if insults come at you 
and you have to receive them because of your identification with Christ, you can almost wear it as a badge of honor because it's the Holy Spirit who is present and tangible in your life. Again, I see how people use this as an excuse to share the gospel without any care for their hearers, and they complain that people hate Christ. And that may be true, but sometimes they're just jerks. But knowing that the message of the gospel and the name that we proclaim is countercultural, it goes against everything the world is trying to feed us. The gospel of Christ is offensive to a world without conviction that God exists and holds people accountable for their motivations and their actions. In verse 15, Peter says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Peter contrasts suffering for the believer, one with the Spirit of God and one without the Spirit of God present. Murderers, thieves, criminals, and meddlers, people identified by these attributes are not ones dominated by the Holy Spirit. I think the dichotomy that people struggle with is that the Christian faith is that you can do things that require God's supernatural forgiveness and still be a beloved child of God. You can do things wrong and God still loves you, but you can also do everything right in the eyes of man and be as unforgiven as Hitler himself. The point is that we are not dominated by the flesh as we once were when we didn't have a choice prior to Christ becoming our Lord, we were unable to be defined by God because we were identified by our sinful nature. This is a difficult reality to embrace. You are not saved by what you do, nor are you disqualified by what you do or don't do, but you cannot have the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, residing in you and live without a care for what you do. The Spirit of God is more than a conscience. He convicts and guides us unto the will of God through our actions. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, you do, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. But if you suffer as a Christian, Peter says, this doesn't mean if you suffer while being a Christian. This means if you suffer because of your identification with Christ, which to the first century believer spread all around Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, they were experiencing deep and wide persecution for their connection to Jesus. And Peter is telling them that they shouldn't be ashamed or feel bad about their association, but they should praise God for their connection. People misrepresent Christ a lot, having no idea the Christ that they claim to follow. Church, we have the benefit and the privilege of being able to open the Word of God anytime we want and to read it, to devour it, to study it, to enjoy it. And it tells us more and more about the Christ that we identify with. Not only that, though, but we have the benefit, the privilege, if we've trusted Christ, to have the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, residing in those of us who have, by faith, have humbled themselves, bowed down to Jesus' lordship, and repented of their sins. And that Spirit, 
the spirit that convicts the world of its sin, the spirit who guides and intercedes on the believer's behalf, the spirit who hovered over the waters in the beginning of creation, that spirit that descended like a dove upon Jesus after he came out of the water of his baptism, the same spirit that through power raised Jesus from the dead, that spirit helps us along as we attempt to interpret and grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and our relationship with him. See, feelings and emotions matter, as does our intellect and getting to know the real Jesus described and explained in the word of God. It is for this Jesus, the one that we identify with, the one that we represent, the one that we love, the one that we are devoted to, the one that we owe our lives to, that we enjoy even if and when persecution comes and we suffer because we are coupled with him. And they, the first century church, and we, the 21st century church, can take joy in this. We can find peace in the suffering And most importantly, we can praise God's name even when suffering comes. Verse 17, Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I want to share something with you that may or may not stick. You may have forgotten, you may have glossed over You may have uh, or utterly, completely, possibly don't even understand. But here it is. This is the thing I want you to think about right now. That God loves you. Let that sink in for a moment. God loves you. He loved you before the foundation of the earth was laid. He loves you now. He loves you when you were at your worst. He loves you when you are trusting and following him by faith. He loves you not based on who you are, but based on who he is. His love is not predicated on your earning, but available because of his nature and character. And knowing that he loves you makes suffering and trials and pandemics and difficult circumstances more bearable. Because our lives are not an emotional roller coaster dictated by happenstance. Our lives are a marathon training ground of worship for the God most high. And once you realize and embrace that God loves you, that you are loved and a cherished child of God, I also want to make sure that you realize that God disciplines those whom he loves lest we become spoiled brats in the faith. He refines us. He disciplines us. He molds us and transforms us to look more like him. And that doesn't happen with pillows or moon dust or feathers. It requires difficult opportunities to be endured. And my point, and the point that Peter is making, is that if God disciplines those whom he loves, how much harsher Will it be for those who reject and rebel against him? How much harder will it be for them? 
See, the reality is many of us look at people that have nothing to do with God and we think that they're better off for whatever silly reason because maybe they're financially doing well or maybe they seem like they don't need Jesus. But Peter's pushing against this idea. See, God brings judgment to his church, but oh, do we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And my heart breaks for those that can't see the beauty and the grace offered in Jesus Christ. I know for me, I tend to get angry when someone can't see Jesus for who he is. But Scripture points out pretty often that they only can see him if God gives them the eyes to actually see. Much of my frustration over time has been directed more specifically at fundamentalists that claim that they believe that they are saved by grace as long as you do everything right. See, that's the heart of a fundamentalist. They claim that they believe the same things that a Christian believes, but then they add to it. But my heart should break for those fundamentalists as well because they have replaced the gospel of Jesus Christ with righteousness, right standing, earned by their effort. And that isn't the gospel, nor will it ever be the good news of Jesus. Peter ends with, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I just want you to notice real quick that as Peter says this, that Peter doesn't say those who believe in the gospel of God, but obey. Obey implies belief. In fact, it is evidence of one's belief. But can you obey without believing? Absolutely. Sure. Pharisees and religious folk have been doing it for thousands of years. But to obey because of belief is inspired by the Holy Spirit. What better way of loving God back than living as his child and representing your father with obedience and respect. It is so easy to get this twisted. The idea that one can obey without first believing becomes the way that cults and religions get their start. But to be in relationship with the king of kings, obedience is a byproduct of love. So Christians, I'd implore you, don't worry about how good you think people who want nothing to do with Christ have it. Don't look at the discipline you may have to endure as a punishment for something that you've done, but as an opportunity for God to conform you into his image. It's easy to think that those who may act as if their life is easier or better are better off, but our eternal perspective and hope supersedes any momentary privilege we think someone has. So then Peter says in verse 18, and it is hard for the righteous to be saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Many attribute what Peter is saying to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31, where Solomon says, if the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? But many also can attribute this to a very common Jewish proverb as well, and I, I would lean towards that's probably what Peter's talking about, but here's the point. It is impossible for anyone attempting to earn salvation. It's just impossible for them in general. There isn't enough good you or I can do, but those who have embraced grace in Jesus Christ have uh, received unmerited favor in Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection and exaltation. But those who believe they are righteous without Christ's sacrifice and forgiveness, they're without hope, even though they believe that they're okay. 
And ironically, the sinner and the ungodly isn't just the person who doesn't obey, but the person who obeys for the wrong reasons. Let me say that again. I don't want you to miss that. The sinner and the ungodly isn't just the person who doesn't obey, but the person who obeys with the wrong motives and for the wrong reasons. And those who don't believe in the gospel of God don't obey the gospel of God and are obviously not identified by the gospel of God who have only judgment to look forward to. Verse 19, so then, Peter says, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Those who suffer according to God's will, oh, that statement will preach. Listen, some of our suffering is self-inflicted. Some of us make poor decisions. Okay, let's be real. All of us make poor decisions. But some of us do that, make a poor decision, and then we shake our fists at God because we think that he had done that to us. Does God permit suffering? Absolutely. But through the understanding of what suffering can produce in his people. Our suffering, when it is God's will, glorifies him as we respond in worship and obedience. So those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good, Peter says. Commitment may seem like an action word, and sometimes it is. It is the act of committing, but Peter seems to be intending to push our hearts in a specific direction, meaning that we would deposit our well-being to God, our Creator's care. That we understand that our safety and protection comes from Him. Now, I know how that can be misconstrued. We could see this as a situation and an excuse to not exercise judgment of common sense. You notice that people struggle with common sense? Not exactly sure why we call it common if no one has it. Because we think that, well, if God wants us to be okay, then we will be okay. But listen, a lot of us do essentially the whole idea of jumping out of a plane without a parachute. And listen, that's not faith. That is stupidity pretending to be spiritual. God gives us intellect and knowledge and the opportunity to study and learn things through cognitive ability for a reason. And guess what? It's known as reason. But we as followers of Christ who have been bought at a price do not live under the mirage that we are ultimately in control ourselves, but that God is. And he is a faithful creator and possessor of our lives. So Peter concludes this thought with this, submitted and committed to your creator and continue to do good, he admonishes the early church. I don't think how you see do good if you see that as framed by what culture tells you that is, it's wrong. Even though that target seems to always be moving and changing, but to do good comes out of a loving obedience to our king. Doing good has less to do with your action and what you're doing than it does with the motivation behind your doing. And I'd like to add it also that it also is this opportunity where a lot of people do something good, and then we want praise for it. We want pats on the back. That's not the doing good that Peter's talking about here. I've been doing ministry a, a while now. I can pull the whole back in my day, and I see a lot of patting ourselves on the back. I know I spent a lot of time doing that. 
When something was impossible without God being the active ingredient and catalyst, I still wanted credit. Our good works and our strength are nothing more than an attempt for accolades. But good works spurred on by the Holy Spirit bring glory and attention and praise to God. So my ask of you, Church of the Valley, as this message concludes, as I'm going to finish what we're doing here, don't close your Bibles yet, though. My question is this. How are you bringing attention to God rather than to yourself? For some, this may be a mode of evangelism. You may be sharing with others the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're pointing people to it's all about him. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. For some, it will be sharing a story of how God showed up in our lives. I cannot tell you the ridiculous things that God has done in my life in the past 10 days. I can't tell you yet, but I will start to share in the future. For some, it will not be simply just by not complaining when stuff is super hard and keeping our mouth shut when we want to lose it on someone. Sometimes the attention brought forth to God is subtle, and sometimes it's grandioso. Was that Dora the Explorer? I think it was. Church, we are in a wonderful time in history. Wait, did I just say that? Yes. Five weeks off from preaching has made me more of an optimistic prime than I have ever been before. So I want you to stay with me. Just let's think about this. We have been sheltered in place for many, many, many months. That's not the the good part. And we have been attempting to find new normals while keeping ourselves and other loved ones safe. But never has church services and the truth of the gospel and communication been more accessible and easily transmitted across the whole world through technology. People are desperate for hope like never before, and that hope can't be found in a politician or even a vaccine, but it can and always will be found in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Never has there been a time in history that we have been any closer to Jesus' return, and we as Christians have the responsibility, and I would say the opportunity, to be prepared to point people to him as we joyfully expect his return. So church, prepare yourself for Christ's return. Not because we know he's coming back anytime soon, but because we are told to be prepared and we don't know that he isn't coming back soon. So be prepared. Suffer well and point the attention to our king because he is worthy and we want him to be known in our sphere of influence. That's my sermon. I just have a few things that I want to point you towards as I've come back to to preach, and I'll be preaching a a little more over the next few weeks. Community groups start this week. If you haven't already signed up for one, I would encourage you to do so because what a sweet opportunity for people to connect with one another. We are doing one community group where it's going to be meeting in person. We're going to follow all the guidelines. It's going to be outside. There are going to be masks. But I'd encourage you, if that's something you want to do, you want to be around some other uh, friends in the faith, some other dudes, I'd encourage you to sign up for that group. There's a bunch of groups that uh, are meeting online that give you the opportunity to kind of pick a time that might work best for you. So please check it out on our website and sign up this week. We have some awesome leaders leading this semester. 
Next takeaway call, 11.30, we do it every single week. I gotta be honest, it's my favorite thing about the pandemic in the sense that we get to see multiple faces and get to hear somewhere between 30 and 40 to 50 takeaways every single week. It is such an encouragement to me and to my family and to others that are jumping on that call. So 11.30, jump on the call with us. The, the link should be in your email. If you haven't gotten it, contact Robin. And then lastly, and we talk about this a lot, every week at least, but we, don't re we haven't really taught on it because it hasn't come up in the text that often, but you have an opportunity to worship through giving. It is, we call it an offering. We don't call it a tithe. I believe that tithing was an Old Testament thing. In fact, New Testament was a lot more than a tenth, but we trust that people give of their uh, income based on a percentage between them and God, and we don't say, hey, it has to be this amount. We just trust that you and God are having dialogue regarding giving, and we don't ask you to give so we can keep the lights on. We ask you to give because it's an opportunity to worship, and God loves a generous giver. God has given us so much. How could we not want to give back? for the glory of his name. And so if you want to give, you can do that by sending a check to the church campus and we will take that check and deposit it. Or you can give online, which a lot of people are doing. We'd encourage you to go to the website, covalley.com forward slash give, and then you can create a PayPal account. And you can give that way. For those of you who have been giving faithfully, I praise God for you. For those of you that are yet to give, but are a part of this community, I'd encourage you to do so because you'd be shocked by what God can do as you start to give. Ask anyone you think gives, and they probably have a story of God showing up and showing off through the giving of our finances. I love you guys. I'm grateful to be your pastor. I'm so excited to be back. I hope that kind of showed in the sermon. I'm going to pray for us, and I know that's weird. I know you're not in the pews like I would normally do this, but wherever you're watching this, if it's Saturday night because we got it out a little earlier or if it's Sunday morning or it's later on in the week, I just encourage you to take a breath and allow these words that I'm gonna pray to the Lord to wash over you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for every person that is hearing my voice in this moment. I thank you, God, that you are using this playlist. I thank you that your word does not come back void. I thank you that you are uh, allowing the people of COV to grow more in your likeness, even in a, a difficult time of endurance. God, I pray that you give our people more endurance. I pray that those who feel isolated, that we don't know are isolated, would reach out. I pray, God, that those of us who are overwhelmed with trying to help our kids through school on screens, that you would give us a ton of grace and peace to give to our children as well. I pray for the teachers that are doing this as well. I know it's not fun for them either, but God, I pray that you'd use all of this to build connections for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that those who give would be blessed in the reality that it is an act of worship. And for those that are on the fence that haven't given yet, that you would encourage them to do so, not be out of compulsion, but that you would guide them to give what, what you give them the heart to want to give. God, thank you that you're in the business of transformation. Thank you that you're working in us. May your name be glorified this week through your people at COV, and may we bring attention to the goodness of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Love you all.